Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. This is Scotty again, your station manager. You just got through listening to New Abolitionist Radio. And we are going to transition to the Lotus Place radio show. Um, again, Sister Black Rose, the regular host, is feeling a bit under the weather tonight. But she does have uh, someone stepping in for her. And I do believe we have Brother Brown on the line. Brother Brown, are, are you um, stepping in for Sister Rose tonight? Brother Brown, are you there? Okay, give me just a second. I know what the problem is, bro. I'm sorry. I got you muted. Uh, My bad. Go ahead, Brother Brown. Yes, can you hear me now? Yes, sir. We can hear you. We certainly appreciate you stepping in for uh, Sister Black Rose. And I understand that uh, Sister Hattie is supposed to join uh, as well, but she hasn't called in yet. So it's just you for now. Yeah, me and uh, I think it's a doctor called to call in too. Okay, if I see them join in, I will certainly uh, unmute them. But right now, it's just just you, bro. Okay, I got it. Well, first of all, to the listening audience, on the welcome to the Lotus Place. I'm sorry, my partner, Sister Black Rose, is not available this evening. She's a little bit under the weather, but we're gonna go ahead with our regular endeavors to educate our community and let them know. That we are in a struggle. We have been in a struggle for over 2,000 years. And, uh, one of the songs that came on prior to the show coming on, where the guy was talking about his cousin was driving down the street in Chicago, driving a Rolls Royce, and a police car came up behind him. Well, we're going to talk about black empowerment this evening, but before we get into that part, I would I always like to make collaboration to my ancestors. And libation is an African ritual that we uh, lost during our transition with the transatlantic slave trade. And what it is is showing respect to the elders that they have made the transition from this side of life to eternity. And uh, I always ask permission of my elders to speak, and it's followed by saying, Ashe. Now, I'm going to call out some names and people that's listening. Call out names of real deceased loved ones, those that have passed on. 
elders to speak. My elders and my ancestors to speak. I say, uh, I want to thank the ancestors for Dr. John Henry Clark, Dr. Joseph Yakinen, Brother Malcolm X, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the Most Honorable Marcus Mosiah Godwin, Ashay, the Honorable Harriet Tubman, Soldier in the Truth, Mary Macleod Patoon, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Carter G. Woodson, Henry Wilmot Blyden, Matt Turner, Edmund Lassen, Gabriel Bronson, and all the other freedom fighters, uh, Khalid Muhammad, and all the other freedom fighters. Oh, I forgot one that I love, Dylan. I read all of his books, Dr. Tony Martin, and all of those who have made the transition and who have contributed to us, especially my mother, Mary Lou Osborne, my grandmother, Vivian Lou Christian Brown, my grandfather, David Arthur, David Arthur Brown Sr., my uncle, David Arthur Brown Jr., people who have made a significant uh, um, change in my life during my 61 years on this planet. And I ask that my ancestors continue to bless us with spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding in the Yeruhu, which means independence of our people. Ashe, Ashe, and Ashe. Tonight I'm going to talk about black empowerment. And when we look at the social, economic, political, and educational aspects of our community, we'll see that our communities are in a great disarray. We know that there is crime in our community. We understand the position of the public school system. We have economic losses. Our businesses have been destroyed. Our business districts have been destroyed through the elements of gentrification. And the social aspects of our people is in a um, pandemonic uh, position. Okay, we, 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 we have a lot of elements, negative elements, that is just destruction, bringing total destruction to our community. But tonight we're going to talk about how black people can empower themselves, empower their community, get back to what we lost in Africa. And my, my analogy is based on a book. Our sister Marimba and niece. One of them is called Urugu, which is a very, very in-depth book dealing with white supremacy and racism and the system of how it has mentally destroyed us as an African people. And the other book is called To Be African. You know, we see people with the glocks in their hair. We see people with uh, African clothing. But to unlock your mind, is what has to take place in this age. You know, we need to understand the significance of reading books, educational books about black authors who have passed on, who have passed on, and have laid the groundwork for giving us a blueprint for empowerment. And when I teach younger generations of kids, mainly uh, from the ages of 15 to 18, some of them in their 20s, 
who have not been introduced to this book called The Miseducation of the Negro. And for those of you in the listening audience who have not read this book, it is, it is one of the necessitated books that you must read. It is very enlightening. There are blueprints for empowerment that Dr. Carter G. Wilson took his undivided time and attention to research and write. And there's a book that he wrote before he wrote The Miseducation. That is The Education of the Negro, Grip of the Negro, excuse me, prior to 1865. In these two books, Dr. Wilson outlined a plan. Okay. And it was a plan that was later assisted by Dr. Booker T. Washington. And when Booker T. Washington passed on, it was, it was, it was promulgated and uplifted by the Honorable Marcus Mosiah God. And these plans were, 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 were spiritual elements from our ancestors that gave these brothers the wisdom to lay these things down in books. You know, and when a lot of people look at the life of Booker T. Washington, uh, up from slavery, it was not just a prophetic book, but it was an outline of how we should learn how to empower ourselves. You know, and if you put that aside, if you put that beside Dr. Carter G. Wilson's book, Miseducation of the Negro, you will also learn how to utilize your professional education and bring something back to the community. One of the things I liked about College of Wilson's uh, analogy was that when we go to get our degrees from colleges, whether they be white colleges or black colleges, we never take the endeavors to empower ourselves with our education. We never bring back that element to our community, regardless of what your degree is in. There's always a need in our community that will assist us in empowering ourselves. And that's what Booker T. Washington did. When he, after slavery, Booker T. Washington knew that we were, we were going to live in a service-oriented industry, uh, nation. And what he did, he, when he got the money to start Tuskegee Institute after he graduated from Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University, located in Hampton, Virginia, uh, Dr. I mean, Booker T. Washington laid a plan to allow us to be all trades persons. And I remember coming up as a young boy growing up in North Virginia that I had people tell me, uh, older men, you know, I used to hang around in the pool room with older men and things like that. And they would tell me, say, you know, learn the trade, learn how to do something with your hands that the white man can't never take away from you. And you will always be able to make money to take care of your family and empower yourself. See, we're not taught that today. We're not taught how to utilize trade and bring them back to our community to be just to serve our own people. We, and, and, you know, after this so-called migration of people from south of the border, when they came in Grove, and this is not a racist statement. It's just that these people came over here to go to work. They might have worked for less money, but they came over here with a game plan. We have been over here 
according to European indoctrination since 1619. Okay, we're going on 500 years of being in this country. And you know, I, I teach, I teach a lesson called, if you don't know the game, if you don't know the rules, don't play the game. Well, the game of white supremacy and racism has a lot of facets to it. And one of the things that we have to understand is that we need to learn the rules by which these people play by. It's just like anything else. If you, if you want to be a football player, you have to learn how to play the game. And you play the game by learning the rules of the game. Same thing about baseball. Same thing about basketball. You know, so we have to learn the game of white supremacy and racism because this is a an era right now where our ancestors are pouring out knowledge, they're pouring out wisdom, you know, and they're pouring out their spirits upon us so that we can grasp this energy and this information and reverse some of the negativity that we have been living with for the last 2,000 years. And it's time for black people to understand that it is a necessity. It is an absolute necessity that these elements be taught to our children at a young age. You know, the same way when we got here, the European taught us about his religion. We have to reverse the psychology of what was taught to us for the last 500 years on this continent. We have to reverse that because we, we, what we, if we do not reverse it, then what we will have is a whole nother generation of people who haven't lost identity with Africa. And I know sometimes people don't want to accept the fact that we are African. Uh, we've been called everything but African. You know, and, and it's time that we, you know, set some rules. It's time that we put some things in place for our future generation. Uh, I live on the eastern shore of Maryland, and there was a problem in Salisbury, Maryland, with juvenile delinquency. We got 12 and 13 years old, 13 year old kids hanging out to 1, 2, and 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, that's not a place for them. So the city decided, because of the crime rate increasing due to the increase in heroin traffic, that they would have to place a curfew on these kids. And, you know, a lot of people have been attending the various meetings that we've been having. And, you know, some of these young black people, well, we don't need a curfew on our kids. And, you know, my, my, the problem that I have with that is that when your child is out there at 2 o'clock in the morning, he's 14 years old. What kind of parenting are we doing? And that goes back to the black empowerment of our social skills. You know, we can talk about teenage pregnancy, but we have always had teenage pregnancy in our community ever since our enslavement, because enslaved masters would take the young girls and impregnate them. So teenage pregnancy should not be something and then going from 1900 up until 1950, if a young girl had a baby, it was not a disgrace. It was not a disgrace in our community. The older women in the home, because at that time, we lived with what is now called extended family in the home. 
grandmother stayed in the home, and we've been having the nursing homes to put her in. So we took care of her until it was time for her to make her transition. We nurtured her because she nurtured us. We fed her because she fed us. There was a, a genuine love for our, our people in the home. You know, then they came up with these nursing homes, and that was a way to snatch the property from us. Because when our elders went to nursing homes, and they had these houses and acres of land in various rural and sometimes metropolitan areas, then we had to either sell the land or give it up in order for them to be taken care of. So we kind of we kind of got away from empowering ourselves in that aspect. But it is essential, as I said previously, for us to get back to black empowerment. And one of the things that Booker T. Washington did was that when he created Tuskegee Institute, as I said earlier, he made sure that we had trades. Shoemakers, okay, we had tailors, we had nurses, we had cooks, we had plumbers, we had people with building skills, so we could take care of ourselves. We did not have to be dependent upon Europeans to take care of us anymore. You know, and that went on for a long period of time until this thing that they dropped on us called integration. We did not see how integration was a trap. Some of our leaders did not see how integration was a trap. You know, integration destroyed us economically, which means if we don't have economics and be self-sufficient, then we can't take care of ourselves. It's like a man going to work every day, uh, making eight hours a day and 40 hours a week and coming home and not receiving a paycheck. He cannot take care of his family. So when we, when we, when this thing called integration came along, it disenfranchised our empowerment on different levels. It disenfranchised our empowerment on the economic level. It disenfranchised our empowerment. Uh, our empowerment in the home and a disenfranchised our empowerment in the schools. I was a product of both sides of that school situation because I started school in 1960 in all black schools. Okay, in, 19, in 1970, that's how long it took Brown versus the Board of Education to actually come to fruition. You know, it, it took it took 16 years to implement that. You know, and when Brown versus the Board of Education came into fruition in 1970, they had something called massive busing under the Nixon administration all over the country to allegedly achieve a racial balance. But what we didn't understand was that this was also a plan to later destroy inner city schools that had a majority of black students. And we didn't see that at that point in time. We did not have enough foresight to see how this would be negligent to our people. And, you know, of course, the problem was that we thought we had arrived. We thought we had came into a place of equality in this country. Uh, that was the that was the sixties revolution. That was the seventies 
Uh, I was a member of the Black Panthers in Norfolk, Virginia, with a, and, and, a, and a, a member of the Black Vanguard, which I learned a lot about who I was at an early age. It gave me a revolutionary mindset to understand certain elements associated with white supremacy and racism. Now, I had never been taught the ideology that I learned from Dr. Francis Cress Wilson or Dr. Neely Fuller to that degree. But I did I do I did learn that there was an unequal playing field in this country. And uh, if there's any callers that want to call in, please feel free to call and uh, Brother Scatter will, you know, unmute you to Yes, I, I most certainly will. Let me give that telephone number out. And uh, Brother Brown, you're doing an excellent job, brother. Just want to let you know that uh, every 30 minutes, and it's a two-hour program, every 30 minutes we take a short station identification break. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, um, give us a call, 641-715-3660. That's 641-715-3660. The access code is 549032 pound that's five four nine zero three two pound that of course is posted for you on the lotus place program description for tonight if you are dialed into the conference line and you want to speak hit star six and one that'll throw your hand up or a question sign behind your uh right beside your number that way i know that person wants to speak otherwise we assume that you're just listening through the phone all right. Please continue, Brother Brown. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, during that period of time in the 60s and the 70s, in the 70s, you know, there was a whole lot of what they call revolutionary tactics being used on all levels, like John Carlos and them at the Olympics. And we had a strong sense of unity. We, we we knew what we had come from during the late fifties and early sixties when Doctor excuse me, when Dr. King and Malcolm X was really out in the forefront trying to educate our people and fighting for their human rights. You know, and but like I said, we did not see the pitfalls of integration. And as I said earlier when I went to when I got into the public, when I got into the integrational schools, you know, coming from an all-black school to an all-white school, I saw one thing. I saw massive inequality in the same public school system. There were books being used, and I was very observant at an early age. There were books that were used when I went to the white schools that we had never seen in the black schools. We never even saw a literature book in the ninth grade. These white kids had literature books in the ninth, tenth grade. We didn't get a literature, a literature book in the all-black school because there was only one all-black school in the city of Norfolk. It was Booker B. Washington High School, and that's still standing there today. But that we did not get a literature book until the 11th grade. So with that inequality in, in education, I knew at 16 years old, that something was wrong with that system. And we faced a lot of racial epithets when we went to the school with these white kids. And, you know, we boycotted one day and we just walked out. We, we got together. We formed a little group when they put 
you know, niggas go home, go back to the project because the majority of, of us that had been transferred to that school came from public housing communities. So we walked out of class and we said we would not be treated like this. You know, we made the newspaper, we made the six o'clock news. But the thing about it is that I saw how we was losing our element of empowerment through the education system. And the economic system, you know, we can go all the way back to Black Wall Street. Every economic system that we have had since the so-called Reconstruction period has been destroyed. You go to Harlem right now, Harlem is full of white people, Asian people. 30 years ago, I go 20 years ago, you could not find these people in the inner inner city parts of Harlem, New York. Then they started putting these charter schools in the Harlem and they said that for these white kids to come in and their fathers could buy these condos that had been renovated tenement houses that we used to be able to live in because of rent control. When Governor George Pataki, who was then the governor of New York, he lifted that. You know, one time, if I rented, let's say I rented a house in Harlem in 1963, and as long as that lease was in my name, you know, nobody could go up in the rent, up on the rent. And I would pass that on to my brother who wanted to live there, and it was legal in the city of New York. Now, when Pataki came, he changed the rules. So when they went up on the rent, a lot of the black people had to move out because they couldn't afford the high rent. And that was one of the elements of gentrification, which I'm going to talk about right now. Gentrification was a process by which uh, it's a sociological term. And what it means is that you take poor people living in a in a in an urban area, and you draw up plans to eradicate them out of their houses, change the structure of their community, and put them somewhere else. And the people that you move in will have better jobs, better housing, and and better schools. Well, well, I'm, I, like I said, I come from North Virginia. I saw half of the city make this transition. And it was the saddest thing because we had a business that we started in 1975. And I think it ended in that we, we, we ran a restaurant for five years before they came through and tore down what is called Church Street. Church Street to Norfolk, Virginia was what uh, 125th Street was to Harlem, New York. You know, it was, a, it was a thriving street with businesses on both sides from one end to the other. And we could go in business in that area. We didn't own the buildings, but we owned the business. And once they came through with the plan of gentrification, they tore down at least 60 black, 60 or 70 black business and replaced them with five. So when something like that happened, and it happened all across this country, you know, it's not selected to just Norfolk, Virginia. But once this plan of gentrification took place, you know, it paved the way to resegregate the schools. See, we, we, we have to take a, a broader look at our disenfranchised. We have to take a broader look 
we have to look at how we are disenfranchised by rules of this European's game of white supremacy and racism. And I know some people hate to hear that terminology over and over and over, but it's something that we need to attack. And the only way we can attack it is through self-empowerment. You know, we have a problem with the public education system. But what are we doing about it? What are we creating to teach our kids how to excel in the public education system? Everybody can't go to a private school. Everybody can't afford a charter school. But we have to utilize the elements of what we have. We can no longer continue to allow them to dictate the policy of how our children become successful. And it's getting close to my break time. I got a couple of seconds, but I'm going to break at 10.30 for a minute so we can stay, take the station break. But if people are listening, I want to call in. I want you to call in because I'm curious to know what other areas of this country that you come from are you experiencing these same elements. If you come from the Deep South, I know what you're experiencing. If you come from Los Angeles, I want to see what you're experiencing. And if you come from the East Coast, I also want to see what you're experiencing in various cities like Baltimore. I frequent Baltimore all the time because my wife comes from Baltimore. And I live two hours away on the Eastern Shore. But anyway, it's time for a station break. And uh, we're going to let the sponsors go ahead and do what they do. And we'll get back to the gentlemen. Peace and blessings. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Brother Brown, we do have um, a call, and um, they've been hanging on for about five minutes. Do you want me to pick that up? Yeah, go ahead and pick it up. Okay. All right. As soon as I'm about to pick them up, they hung up. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. And anytime you want to chime in, my brother, and there's something that you got to say, feel free. Okay, I, I, I will. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you want to chime in, feel free to chime in. You know, because we got to work on this thing together. Okay, I think we we have them back. Let me um uh let me check this number. Area code 228, did you want to make a comment or ask a question? Who do we have? Hi, this is uh Mother Dunning. Hey, Mother Dunning. Hey, um uh, yeah, I don't know if you know, but Brother Brown is hosting tonight. Our sister Black I Rose. Know, is, I've been listening. Yeah, she's I've feeling kind of bad tonight. Yeah. How you doing, Mother Dunning? Fine, fine, fine. But, Brother Brown, I want to ask another question. I want to uh, see, you know, what you think about this. I was looking at the news tonight, and they try this organization that called Black Lives Matter, they trying to say that the organization is the cause of all these polices being, being shot and killed. So then the night they had a black lady on CNN, she on made the news, and she was saying that we is our own problem. And then she said that um, 
it's us in our community. And we we the reason the way our community is. We can't blame the police. And 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 all the the white folks was cheering and cheering. But see, people like that like that. They always have somebody that they say say something and get the white folks worked up. What she got mad about is in her community, a nine year old girl was killed, which is sad. Now, don't get me wrong, which is sad. But she said the Black Lives Matter didn't come out and say nothing about the nine-year-old girl being killed. But the the another lady said the community came out and rallied. Uh, it's still the black lives don't have to come out and rally. And so I'm saying, to me, it looked like they trying to make the the black life a scapegoat. And then um, uh, the white man on the news station, what's his name, uh, O'Donnell, that's on Fox News. O'Reilly, O'Reilly. He said that his number one goal, he gonna make it his mission to get black lives taken shut down and off the TV. So this is a this is they trying to classify they wanna classify them as a terrorist group. So what is your take on that? Do you do I see black lives as a as a good step. What do you think about it? Well, you know, I've been watching them, them uh, for a couple of months now when this thing first erupted with, uh, well, started with, 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 with Ferguson and moving on down to Baltimore uh, until this last shooting where the brother was uh, working at a TV station. Um, and And we have to look at police brutality and police misconduct as an element of white supremacy and racism. You know, because whenever a white cop shoot or kill anybody of the African community, they're always exonerated of any kind of wrongdoing and they are protected by something called color of law which means in the duty of that officer's job as a constitutional officer of the municipality or state, he is exonerated, he is, he is, he is uh, exempt and exonerated from any persecution as long as it's proven that he was protecting the interests of the municipality or the state, like a state trooper or a local cop, as long as they say he is protecting their interests of that municipality or state. He's exonerated from charges. That's why they don't ever go to jail. I've been explaining color of law to people for, I guess, over 10 years or more, you know, after I found out what it was. So when we look at that element, you know, that we see how they can always come out and utilize efficient an efficient attack on us. Because as I said earlier, if you were listening, we have not learned the rules of white supremacy and racism and how to take that empowerment back from them. And I understand that there has to be a certain criteria that we have to meet. And I'm not agreeing with the lady. Now, I'm agreeing because if you already know that there's a trap laid for you, we have to learn how to, how to go around those traps. We have to learn how to 
think about the traps that's already been set. If there's deviant, like I said earlier about juvenile delinquents, if the juveniles are not in the street, and this is what I pose to, to the police chief of Salisbury, Maryland, I said if the juveniles are not in the street, then they can't be, some, they can't be arrested for any crime. Mm. Whether they did the crime or not. If you're not out there where the crime is being committed, you can't be arrested. Mm. Okay? And we have to understand, it's not plunking out or nothing like that. We have to understand the games. The game is called genocide. Genocide means the evacuation and destruction and annihilation of a race of people from this planet. And Europeans have been fighting for genetic survival ever since mankind. Because they are a minority. Dr. Francis West Wilson said it best in her book called the ISIS paper. Dr. Neil Fuller Jr. stated in his book called the Unified Compensatory Code. This is their demeanor. This is what they have been doing for centuries. And they're not gonna stop now. Yes, black lives matter because we're the ones that's being killed. Now, we have a whole nother scenario because they, sh they have killed four police officers in nine days. Well, how many of us have they killed? They have killed 200 people. They have been killed just in the city of Baltimore alone. 200. They're approaching they 800. They have 45 people. Huh? I was saying they are uh, fast approaching 800 killed in 2015 alone. Last year was 1,100 uh, killed. But, of course, those right. are not all black black people. That's everybody that the police have killed. Right. Well, this, I meant to get that paper from the store tonight so I could, I could uh, present some of those statistics. But on the front page of this paper, they had up there, they said the majority of the people, that had been killed in the city of Baltimore was white. Coming black. So when we look at what these police officers do and, they, and their misconduct and their behavior, you know, we have to understand the nature of that element. See, number one, they are already scared. When they approach you in your car, they are scared of you, and I don't know why. Okay, they have a certain amount of fear for black people. But because they have the badge and that gun, and they know that they have the color of the law on their side, as well as most district attorneys, as well as most judges, you know, I've heard judges say no police officers wrong in his court. And that was in the city of Virginia Beach one day when I was in there, in the courtroom. He said, I, I will not let anybody come to here can attack a police officer. Mm -mm -mm. And, you know, that that is very, very sad because you're telling me that if there was an injustice done by a police officer, even if, he, if it involved the life of a black person, then you're not even going to listen to the consequence. That judge there needs to be, be impeached. No yeah, that judge needs to be you impeached because he's not being impartial. He or she is not being impartial. Brother Brown, can can That's I take right. a stab at something, um, the question that um, she asked about, you know, the media and, you know, they're pulling this black woman on there saying what she said. I mean, they always. No. Yeah, by all means, go ahead. 
Yeah, they always find that black person to come on and demonize other black people. All right, I got a name for that. It's called proxy racism. It's where these people are being used as tools by the system. All right, to talk bad about other black people. Because then they can say the white people, see, this black person saying it about them, so it must be true. Now, we have known since the 1980s. I can remember. I'm 47. I remember since the 1980s stopped the violence campaigns that have been going on in the black community. And the violence has been going down. The violence, it hasn't been totally eliminated. And I don't think it ever will until we eliminate poverty. And even then, it's still going to be some crime because some people just evil, you know. But here's the thing, though, with what Bill O'Reilly had to say and and, um, what's that white woman named uh, Elizabeth Hasselbeck and as well as a number of others in the media. Back before there was television and radio, they had always had print. They had newspapers. Okay, Benjamin Franklin is credited as setting up the very first printing press, I think, in this country. And they have always in their news media, whether it's print or radio or television, have demonized black people in that media so that the white masses won't feel any kind of empathy for them and and we can continue to treat them as less than human. You know, treat them like the animals that they are. They have always used the media to do that. Let's fast forward to the abolitionists. When the abolitionist movement started with Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, um, you know, and others. Well, the news media was demonizing them people at the time and saying them talking that talk about freeing slaves and it ain't right to enslave people. That's causing these Africans to rebel on the plantation. And so some of those some of those publications that they were putting out were banned in the South. All right. Okay, so now let's fast forward that to 1800s after um, the Civil War during Reconstruction when, you know, you were able to get a couple of black politicians elected in the South. Well, the white newspapers started demonizing black people and reporting all this crime and their animals and their raping white women and this and that. And these niggas didn't got too big for their britches. And so, you know, we know we know what happened during Reconstruction, a whole lot of lynching. They even assassinated black right. politicians. Let's move even further. Let's, right. let's come closer to the 1960s. All right. During the civil rights uh, period. Also before in the 50s with um, Robert F. Williams from right here in North Carolina where I am. Uh, and his movement with the Black Guard, armed self-defense. Let's let's talk about. Yeah, the Deacons for Defense as well. That was another movement. All right. And then oh, let's man, yeah. Then the Black Panther Party, the FBI yeah. through the COINTELPRO. This has been revealed in in government records and government hearings. I think it was the Church Committee hearings. The FBI worked right. hand in hand with the national news media to demonize the Black Panthers and say they was a bunch of racists that hate white people and blah blah blah. They cop killers and all this and that. And that was to turn the public against. The uh, Black Panther Party for self-defense wasn't doing anything but the same, but saying Black Lives Matter. 
Not only were they saying Black Lives Matter, they were making Black Lives Matter by providing services to the community that they weren't getting from the government. Food pantry, clothing drives, free medical clinics, and things of that nature. J. Edgar Hoover said the greatest threat, the the, uh, reason they were such a threat to the national security of the United States was because they were feeding children. Because then if you're feeding children, then the masses, those parents of those children might want to hear something you got to say about politics and your state of being behind these enemy lines. So, yeah, the news media demonized them. Now, let's move to right now. All it is is history repeating itself. That's all it is. It's history repeating itself. Them using the news media to demonize a black independence or black liberation movement so that they don't get any support from the masses. Yeah. You know something? I'm going to add something to that. You know, there was was an abolitionist way before the abolitionist movement whose name was David Walker who came from North Carolina. You know, and David Walker had a white father but a slave mother. But his mother was a free woman, and even though she worked on the plantation, there was a law in North Carolina that said if you had a, if you was a new lot and your mother was free, then you was free. So once David Walker obtained the knowledge of reading and writing and his skills, his, his literary skills, and he got to be an adult, he left. He left the plantation. And he started writing his his, his newspaper, but the newspaper was passed on with elements of of, 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 of bringing his, he was living in Boston, I think, and what he was doing, black merchant seamen that were on these schooner ships would bring these various elements of liberation to the slaves in the South, and that's when they posed the law sanctioning black Merchant seamen that then when they came from the north, they couldn't even get off the ships in the south. And like you said, this is not something that had just started. They put a bounty on David Walker's head. I think it was in 1935, 1835, somewhere like that. And they tried their best to get to him, which they really, excuse me, they eventually got to him. And they found him dead because somebody had poisoned his food. And that's exactly the same thing that happened to Fred Hampton. You know, this, 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 this so-called infiltrator by the FBI or the Chicago Police Department was an informant. And he went to Fred Hampton's house that day and he put, he put a sleeping pill in his Kool-Aid. So that when the police officers came up there to raid his apartment, he would not be able to respond or retaliate. And Fred Hampton was killed right there in the bed with his pregnant wife. So as you said, my brother, these are not things that we that just happen. They will always attack us in the media. They attacked Booker T. Washington uh, uh, years ago when the white woman gave him a kiss. You know, they beat, they beat him almost to death up there in New York City, you know, because they never liked what he was doing by teaching black people how to be self-sufficient. Look at what they did with the media and Marcus Garvey, and they used W.E.B. divorce. They used the NAACP. They used, like you said, that lady on TV, they using her. 
know, no, I call him out. He ain't nothing. You know, well, may have, may have, may have, uh, uh, they have outlasted what their, their, their goal was. They're not vigilant anymore. And I'm a member of the Salisbury branch. And I joined because I was asked to join because I attended so many meetings and my, my input was what they really needed. But I knew they were dysfunctional because I had been a member in Norfolk, Virginia. I was the head of the education chair, uh, head of, I was the chairman of the education committee when they resegregated schools in Norfolk. And I support vehemently to stop that process. You know, because as I said earlier, I knew the difference once they resegregated schools. I knew that we're not, we're not gonna have the same, um, elements that they had in a white school to educate our children. And one of the things that they used to do that, one of the tools that they used rather to do that was called, um, let me see, I, uh, I had the word right on the tip of my tongue. It's, 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 uh, it's not attrition. Uh, but anyway, what they do, I'll think of it in a minute. What they do is that they, they came up with these tests that they got in there, these SOL tests, standards of learning. And your funding is based on what's called accreditation. It's called accreditation. That was one of the major tools of resecting the public school systems around this country. And when they came out with these SOL testing, what they did was say, okay, we will give everybody a test. The schools with the highest test score will get funded first. Well, what they did with that element, they destroyed what was classified as the elementary and secondary school act under Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, uh, plan, which made everybody equal with the funding. And that was the, the prelude to Nixon uh, telling people to bust everybody for racial equality. But as I said, Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, it took 16 years to bring that to fruition. And it took 10 years after that to turn around and revamp the whole process. And what did they use, as the brother just said? They used the media to destroy anything black. They have always done that. You know, and it's not going to be any different. They will always handpick a Negro to do their work for them. And that's one of the processes that we have to learn and understand in the rules of this white supremacy, game of white supremacy and racism is that there are many of us that will allow ourselves to be used by white people. You know, and most of them are, are, are so-called middle-class Negroes who either have a degree. Um, one of my mentors called Negro Intellectual. And they would choose these people, put them on TV, give them a salary. Sometimes they talk black for a minute and then they talk white for a minute. And some of them are just strictly, it's our problem. No, it's not our problem. You know, we have to understand that we are at war. We have been at war. You know, I, I advise people to read the book of Sun Tzu, The Art of War. It tells you how to watch out for your enemy. We need to read enough. Don't, the internet does not have everything on it. We need to buy books from black bookstores. We need to buy black books and educate ourselves if we're not educated. 
and learn if we even if we can't read. The planet DVDs out there where people are teaching us the elements of self empowerment. One of some of the most valuable uh DVDs that I have seen about the John Henry Clark and, and, and brother uh, Amos Wilson, who is both of them have passed on and made a transition. But what I'm saying is that we don't feed into that. We don't buy into the things that's going to help empower ourselves. You know, we look at some of these reality shows and they have black faces on them. They got white sponsors and white producers. This is entertainment of short. We've been entertained too long. And I hate that show, uh, Black, the, the Atlanta Housewife, Black, uh, uh, and Mimi Link. I just hate that show. That show degrades black people so bad. Right. And I just, it's it just a degrading show. And it, and, well, the, you and know, the young, it's just like and the young black it. folks love it. That's all I was trying to say. They just love yeah, it. But, and you're absolutely right because we're, we're not in a position in our minds that we can understand self-empowerment. We're not in a position in our mental intellect to understand that we are at war. You know, um, one of the elements associated with white supremacy and racism is that, you know, people use that terminology, uh, especially white people, they're calling us racist. And, you know, racism means when one group of people control the economic, social, political, and ed- educational aspects of another people. We never control any educational elements over white people. We never control their economics. We never control their social skills. And we sure don't control their political arena. So we can never be racist. We can't practice racism. And I educate people to that. Learn the definition of words. Because in the, in, the, in, the, in the words of the late Bobby Wright, who was another one of my mentors who I read his books, he who defined words rules. The definitions of the words that we use that are in Webster Dictionary and these collegiate dictionaries, you will very rarely find a word of African origin. These are words that were orchestrated by your oppressor, made viable to your oppressor's language and that your oppressor continues to use against you. But these house Negroes who's going who's going around, you know, just like I looked at one of the um one of the Donald Trump uh, uh, uh I don't look at them that's too much because I'm really not interested. But I happened to glance at it one day and saw all these black people around there running towards Donald Trump. Well, guess what? It's yeah, not yeah, he's not thinking about him because Donald Trump is a hustler. Okay, that's what he is. He's a natural bone white hustler. Donald Trump, some of his uh, uh, buildings were built with union labor. Okay, because that's union labor in New Jersey where he built his casino that the mob controlled all the jobs up there. So he had mob ties. He had time to organize crime syndicates that came out of New Jersey and Philadelphia. One man might say, okay, you got to use 
If you're going to have an employment done down there in Atlantic City, then you have to use this local that I run. One said, okay, all the concrete that you pour, you got to buy our concrete. You know, this is how he got started. This is how he operates. You know, he, he makes this distinction about China. Well, if you look at one of his neckties that costs about fifty fifty six dollars, you'll find out that all of his stuff is made in China. Okay. And 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 even even when I was looking at the uh, C span a couple of mornings ago and they had a professor from the university who was he was a, a, a he teaches economics and he said that eighty percent of our goods that are sold in our stores come from China. We have the largest trade deficit with the Chinese than anybody in the world. Now the Chinese is trying to take it back and go into Africa and say that they can they can uh, drill for water and they're going to spend money over there bringing water to the communities of Africa. But there's always an underhanded scheme behind it. They're going to control not only the water rights, but they're going to control, end up controlling some of the mineral mines. See, there's more than diamonds and gold that come out of Africa. Africa has some of the most extensive uh, uh, gem mines in the world. Every gem that you want to find that you can put in a ring is found in Africa. Hey, Brother Brown, um, also, because yeah. um, I used to be attached to an aviation unit um, when I was in the military, and with avionics, okay. you know, avionics is what they use, you know, um, and uh, electronics in, in helicopters and airplanes and stuff like that. Uh, also, we look mm-hmm. at cell phones and stuff. There are certain type of, of minerals and stuff that are used for technology that are only found in Africa. That's right. Only found in Africa. And one of the things about about that is Dr. John Henry Clark, and I don't know whether you're familiar with this book or not. It's called How We Betrayed the African Revolution. And in that book, Dr. Clark gives extensive research as to the struggles of our African people that we turned our back against. See, when you, and it goes back to black empowerment, when you have knowledge and wisdom, like I said, you was in aviation, okay? When you have knowledge and wisdom and understanding of how these things work, you don't see many black airlines owned in Africa by African people. But we had that knowledge. We don't have no, we did not take any skill that we learned in these white schools of trained thought like Dr. Cottage you Wilson made a plan for us. We took none of those skills back there. We thought we could develop this that was working for white people. And, and, and we were adamant about it. Wall Street, the destruction of Wall Street should have gave us a blueprint of never trusting them with our economics. When they destroyed Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they burned every black business down to the ground. And guess what? They used army military planes to do it. You know, so we have to look at these things from a whole nother perspective. We have to understand what are the rules of white supremacy. How do we teach the rules of white supremacy to our children so that they will not become this? They will not fall into these pitfalls 
of Negro Nation. And it's about time for a break. When I come back, we're going to get the education system because I have a plan that we can utilize over the airways to start self-education on to it. All right, brother. Go to station break. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lotus Place radio show right here on Black Talk Radio Network. Remember, if you have a question or a comment, please give us a call. 641-715-3660. Again, that number is 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. That's 549-032-POUND. For those already dialed in, if you want to signal me that you want to comment, please hit star six and one on your telephone keypad and we will get you into the conversation. Brother Brown? Oh, yeah. Uh, what part of North Carolina do you come from? Uh, Gaston, Gaston County. It's been renamed so many times, but um, I have indigenous ties to the, to um this land as well as, you know, my free black uh, ancestors as well. But I'm just outside of Charlotte. Um, it's in between Gastonia, North Carolina, which people know it as the Gas House, and Charlotte, North Carolina. But I'm in a rural area. Okay, okay. Because I've been to Wilmington. I've been to Moorhead City. Uh, that was in my earlier travels, you know, years ago. And, um, uh, there's a lot of history in North Carolina. Yes, it you is. Know, there's a lot of black history, you know, and, and, and every time this movie called The Deacons for Defense come on, uh, people don't know that they, they were the prelude to the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. See, we took that ideology of defending our communities, and we took that to the Black Panther Party. That's what it was based on. The Black Panther Party for self-defense. I'm going to just briefly educate some of the people was a unit of brothers who got together. Um, Bobby Seals, Elgin Cleveland, and P. Newton, and who decided that they were out there in Oakland, California, and decided that they were tired of the police brutality. So they didn't attack the police; they just armed themselves. See, they they used their Second Amendment rights. None of them were convicted felons. They were they were college students. You know, and they got a bad name because the police attacked them. Well, earlier in my life, in the last 10 years, I formed my organization, which is the Organization of African American Concerns, when I was living in North Virginia. And one of my, one of my major goals was to destroy the negativity between the Bloods and the Crips. In other words, I used to go into the jail and knock us to the jail and pull these brothers together and ask them why did they hate one another. 
one another. And see, when you taught that element of self-hatred or hatred for self, I hate what I look like and I hate what you look like. I hate what you represent and you look like me. And the ideology that I used to assist these brothers in seeing that dilemma was to tell them, ask them about the slave ship. Have you ever seen a slave ship or a picture of a slave ship? You see how we were packed like sardines on a can, side by side. Now, some of them came from different regions of Africa. They still couldn't understand the dialect, but they knew they had a common goal, and that was to get out of those physical chains of enslavement. So they bonded together. Instead of separating themselves, you come from this tribe, I come from this tribe, they have a sense of, 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 of unity that we didn't exist today. And that's why I started calling truth between these gangs. When I took that element to the streets of my community, I was attacked by the police. I obtained a concealed weapon permit because I worked as a longshoreman. I came home at different times of the day and night, and I lived in a rough community, and I wanted my own self-protection. I'm coming in sometimes 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning for work, you know, and there were drugs in the area. And, I mean, I wanted to make sure that nobody, you know, robbed me and took my hard-earned money. So I was able to get a concealed weapon permit. Police continued to stop me and harass me and tell me, you know, everywhere I went, I would be stopped. I stayed out of Virginia Beach because they stopped me more than anybody. Wasn't doing anything. It was just a harassment for me dealing with these gangs, you know. And once I called a truce in my neighborhood behind a friend of mine's uh, grandson being killed, that broke the ice. I came home from work one day, and two police officers pulled right up behind my, car, my Cadillac, jumped out of the car with their weapons drawn. Now, I, ain't, I haven't done anything but go to work. They never asked me anything. It just so happened. My ancestors had it, so my next door neighbor was standing at the door smoking a cigarette, and she stepped out of the door and said, You all right? Because if she hadn't stepped out of that door, it would have been it would have been curious for me. You know? And as you said about them destroying us, they always have some tool that they use against us. And there came these house neighbors. They tried their very best to destroy me. You know, they would talk about me, well, he's a lone wolf. He's always crying racism against these people. You know, nobody's going to follow him. You know, I wasn't looking for anybody to follow me. I was just trying to stop these kids from killing each other. You know, it made no sense to me that if we're fighting, why should we fight each other? And, you know, they attacked me in the media. The police attacked me until I had to make my transition and get out of there because I took the advice from my mother. She told me years ago, a good man is always better than a bad stand. You know, so I understand what Mother Dunning is saying about these police officers. I understand Mother Dunning what you're saying about these uh, house Negroes, these, these, these plantation-minded people who think that we're living in some kind of multicultural, unified society. And that is farthest from the truth that we can get. We we don't live in a multicultural society. We live in the same society, breathing the same elements that 
our 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 ancestors lived it. There's no difference between a project and a plantation. And I was raised in the project. You living in a housing community separated by fences that restrict your movement. It's just like a plantation. It's a modern day plantation. It's almost like the penitentiary in a certain manner. You know, and they keep us in these conditions mentally so we can never empower ourselves. You know, and if we don't learn how to, you know, I, I, I created something about eight months ago when me and Sister Black Rose was talking, and it's called an African Free School. And we have a lot of educators in our community. We have people who have various degrees. And the point I make all the time is that why these people, some of them are retired, can't come into some of these churches and places that got these so-called uh, 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 educational facilities and allow us to teach our children how to read and do math. Let me tell you something. I did, I did some statistics on this area that I live in. After the third grade, the majority of black males, black males rather, have the lowest reading scores in the state. And I live in the poorest community. I live in the poorest county in the state of Maryland. And the test scores after third grade go from 40% to 19%. So by the time these young brothers are uh, uh, 17, 16 years old, they've already been put back twice. They have no initiative to go to school from 15 or 16 in the seventh grade. You have killed my initiative. You have killed anything for me to allow me to empower myself. I can't get a job. The only thing I got left is this here, though. And once I get, once I sell dope, and once I get a felony, I'm, I'm done. Then now, every now and then you might see a convicted felon, you know, who has come out, has did, has done good, has been accepted again into the community, who has a viable job. You know, uh, the last meeting I was there, they had one brother like that, and he was saying that, you know, he came out and he makes $30,000 a year. But that's not an everyday scenario. You know, we have a lot of kids that come out of college right now, and there's no job for them. You know, we have not learned how to tell our children to go back to what Booker T. Excuse me, what Booker T. Washington taught us. Go to school and learn how to do something with your hands. You know, we don't have any job. You go to school and you want to take psychology. You have to go to school for six or seven years to even think about getting a job. So what are you going to do up until you get almost 30 years old? Where are you going to work? What skills have you developed to empower yourself? You haven't developed no skills. You don't know how to sew. You don't know how to cook. You don't know how to do nothing but work in a service oriented industry, and that's McDonald's, Burger King, or Winters, or ASA. Some type of service oriented industry, or either you work at Lowe's or you sell something. Uh, at, at Home Depot, but you're not you're not having viable employment enough to empower yourself to take care of your family. And this is a necessity because I've seen this when I, I saw this at, in, in a lot of college students. 
that I had to tutor when I was going to get my degree in criminal justice. A lot of them couldn't read with comprehension skills. I'm talking about high school graduates who have made honor rolls and who have graduated with high honors in their, in these schools around this area. They can't, they couldn't read and comprehend. And reading and comprehension is one of the major tools and writings for getting out of college. And I taught them how to write. I taught a whole lot of them how to write papers because the college that I went to, even down to uh, uh, the math class, they had to write a paper in order to get out of there. You know, so they knew our kids. A lot of our kids could not graduate because they couldn't proficiently write these papers. See, we're being locked out of so many avenues that we need to restructure our thinking. We need to restructure some of the elements of how we uh, can use the public school system and the community college system. You know, we have to teach that to this younger generation. Some of them are 30 and 40, you know, they have made different transitions in their life. But we have to go back and reinvent the wheel in our community. We have to go back and grab them five and, five and six and four-year-old kids and mold them. See, Amos Wilson wrote a book called Awakening the Genius in Black Children. And in his analogy, Dr. Wilson said that there is no black child that is born dumb. None. And his example was that the melanin that we possess in our body and the, what in the pineal gland gives us the most, uh, allows us to be some of the most intelligent people on the planet. When you look at the ancient Kemetic people, which were later called the Egyptians, their accomplishment has never been duplicated by any other group of people on this planet. When you look at the pyramids and the insides of the, uh, of the Egyptian pyramids, you'll see things that they cannot explain. And right now today, with all man's modern technology and skills, and building skills, he can build skyscrapers, but he can't build a pyramid. And anyway, you see a pyramid, whether it's a step pyramid or any any other kind of pyramid, it had to come from the knowledge of our ancestors. We still possess that knowledge. We have not learned how to empower ourselves to cultivate that knowledge. You know, the word uh, uh, education means to bring forth the knowledge that is within us. That's why it's essential that we start these little African schools. You take maybe 10 or 15 kids, you know, you see what you go in school and you see what their reading levels are. And we begin to teach them how to read, read with understanding, read stuff that they like to read, teach them how to write, teach them how to use grammar. This will prepare them so that when they go to college, they can come along with these degrees but you make it known to them when you get your degree, you have to come back and empower your people. I know it's not going to be a hundred percent that 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 hold on to that thought process, but like 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 I said, we have to start somewhere. Everybody didn't follow Marcus Garvey. Prime example. Everybody didn't follow Marcus Garvey, but he had enough followers that on every continent. On this earth, there was a chapter of the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association. Every continent, I think, except China, 
you know, so we need to understand the significance of doing that. Do we have any calls, brother? What was that, Brother Brown? I said, do we have any callers? Um, no, no. Um, we got people that's just listening, but if they want to comment to signal me, hit star six and one. Let me give out that phone number. Six, excuse me, 641-715-3660, 641-715-3660, participant code 549-032-POUND. Um, welcome to those who are listening through the phone. If anytime you want to comment, hit star six and one, and I will uh, uh, get your call. Is Mother Bunny still on the line? Yes, I believe so. Mother Bunny? I wanted to ask her something because there was a, a excerpt on the CNN uh, I think last week about Katrina. Yeah, her and her I line's open. Her line is open. She may have stepped away and laid her phone down. Uh, Mother Dunning, um, if you are on the phone, we can't hear you. She may have stepped away, but her line is still open. Yeah, there was a thing that was, um, there was an excerpt done by CNN last week on um, the aftermath of Katrina, 10 years. And, you know, it was sad because what we allegedly see on the news about New Orleans, it looks beautiful. You know, and that goes back to how the media will build up one segment, one segment of what they want us to see. You know, just like I told somebody, you know, they said, man, I don't want, never want to go to Africa because everything in Africa is bad. I said, no, everything they show, show you is bad. You know, they're going to show you the worst of the worst when it comes to us. It's just like North Avenue in Baltimore. They never showed the good parts of, of right behind North Avenue where people live at. They only showed North Avenue in the area that there's a concentration, a high concentration of drug addicted people. They choose what they chose what they saw. They never showed you various parts of, of West Baltimore where they never showed you all the black businesses on North Avenue. See, they, they, they pick and choose what they show. You know, and back to the school system. You know, we have to understand that these African free schools are needed. If you have a, a church in your area or, or, or anywhere that you can rent a small space, and and begin with the young, begin the kids five years old and have a slight after school program where you keep them for an hour a day. That's all, an hour a day. And what we do, excuse me, what we do is that we we bring these kids into our environment, you know, and we get, we, we we check their reading skills and their math skills and find out where they're lacking that. And I'm going to give you a prime example of that. I had a young man who, you know, I, I, I act like I'm his godfather. And he was failing in school. His mother called me and she said, he needs some help. So I took him one day and I took him to the educational bookstore. I got his grade level in, certain, in a certain class that he was failing in. 
and I taught him myself. I sit him down, I let him give him a snack, let him take a break, and then we would go to work. He said, I don't have, I don't know how to multiply to do it. I wrote, I brought him a multiplication table and showed him how to multiply. I said, now the same element you multiply, you reverse it and you do division. Basic skills, basic skills that we can teach these kids. You know, next thing I know, he was an honor student. So it can be done. We just have to figure out how to utilize our time and our efforts to bring things back to the community, to our community, for self-empowerment. It's the same thing that me and Black Rose was talking about when it came to providing services and skills and teaching children, teaching young black women how to sew. You know, that's something that we have gotten away from. Years ago, all black women knew some how to fix hair, how to sew, how to cook. You know, these are things that, that we're not teaching our people. Young black men learn how to read the rule, learn how to use power tools, you know, learn plumbing skills. Man, brick man. One time we had, one time, you know, my, my, my father was a brick man. One time we had, I guess, over, over hundreds of brick man. And you know, you from North Carolina, most of the brick man down there. I've laid brick. Actually, my, uh, <laughs> former brother-in-law used to have his own construction company until crack <laughs> got a hold of him. But he's recovered from that. But he will work under the table, you know, and lay brick. And so I was in between jobs and I needed a job. And he was like, well, can you lay brick? I said, no, but I can learn. And I learned to lay brick. Right. Yeah, once you learn how to mix mortar, and once you learn how to put that line up there, and once you learn how to use that trowel, you're on the way. Yep. Yeah, you only, you know, I mean, I've been around the building because I'm a professional painter, you know, and, but I was a retired longshoreman, but that skill I learned was based on what the older guys taught me. I said, I got to get two skills with my hands. I learned how to paint professional, and I was a chef. So I would never be without employment. Now, I took and auto I mechanics in high school, and have if I could avoid it, I don't take no cars to to the shop. Well, now they didn't got everything so computerized with these cars. You have to take them to the shop. I can do the basic stuff, you know. But some, but yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree with you, man. We need to be teaching our teaching um our youth these trade. They're called trade skills. Right. Yeah, and, and see, we don't we don't look at that as a form of self-empowerment because we're living in a microwave age of computer now. Everything is computer. And I told somebody, I said, if they take that computer from you today, you will not learn anything because you haven't picked up a book. You don't even buy books. And another thing I want to add to the listening audience, we need to start supporting black bookstores. There's a vast degree of black bookstores that are failing on the pretense that we don't buy books. We go to Amazon.com. We go to all these little white websites. You know, we need to buy books from uh, the Black Classic Press. They have a website. We can go in there and buy their books. We need to support black bookstores. Can you get that website out again, please? It's 
called Black Classic Press. Black Classic they're Press. Out yeah, they're out of Baltimore. And another one is uh, it's a, everyone's place. A friend of mine uh, that I've met in the last 10 years, he's the owner of everyone's place, and they have a, he has a book warehouse. Mm-hmm. The website for Black Classic Press is Black classicbooks.com blackclassicbooks.com right and then you can go to everyone's place and he will ship books all, all you have to do is give him the name and the author of a book and he'll get it right and that's everyone's place located on North Avenue you can pull it up on your computer it's everyone's place on North Avenue and uh, they list the phone number and everything like that and he usually, you can usually get them from like 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, Monday through Friday, till about 7 o'clock at night. And on Sunday, they close at 5. And on Saturday, they close at 6. You say that's but in Baltimore? Just, yeah, Baltimore on North Avenue. Yeah, I Everyone just found it. I just found it. That telephone number is 410 Six. I think that's a six. Hold up. I need to clean my screen. It is 410-728-0877. That's 410-728-8077. That's 1356 West North Avenue, Baltimore, Maryland. Right. And he, any, any book that you desire, if you call that bookstore, they will and write and you give them the name of the book. I guarantee within two days he can have the book and have a ship to you. You know, and, 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 and this is what we need to do. So we, I was looking for that book as I told you earlier, my brother, about a book by Sister Lamar and me called To Be African. And I couldn't find that book nowhere. And I called up and I said, look, man, I need to find this book. And he said, brother, man, when you come up here, I said, when you look at when you gonna come up there in Baltimore? I said, I'll be up there in a couple of days. So I have it on the shelf waiting for you. Sure enough, when I got there, it was right there. So if he can get any book, any book that's in print, he can get it. You know? And we yeah. have to start teaching our children. Plus, he has a, 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 a children's section of nothing but black coloring books, books on black history. These are the things that our children need to learn. You know, they're tired of seeing Snow White and Seven Little Men. You know, they don't need to see that anymore. They're tired of the Easter mm-hmm. Bunny. And Santa Claus and 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 Halloween, you know, uh, I, I'm affiliated with a church, and I'm not a Christian. I made that perfectly clear because I believe in my African spirituality that was taken away from us when the transatlantic slave trade. But in the spirit of them not listening, if I'm there to help my people and I help them in any capacity that they need help in, and you know, they were talking about Halloween. You know, and I'm telling, I'm trying to educate these people. How many times do we celebrate the birth or the death of Denmark Lesser, the birth or the death of Marcus Garvin, the birth or the death of William Delaney, the birth or the death of, of the transition, excuse me, of Harriet Tubman? See, I'm not interested in Halloween. I'm not interested in anything that's going to take their mindset off my people from being African and learn we can't empower the minds of our children with, 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 with fairy tales anymore. We can't do that. 
because when they get a certain age, and I must say this younger generation that we got coming along now, see, they're reading. They're reading stuff that we never thought they would read. A lot of them are reading about Rodin's. And, you know, if you mention Rodin to someone, they say, well, I need to know how to do that. And I, I started them off with libation. That's let me tell you something. One of the basic principles of spiritual warfare is libation. And I got a call from a lady that I taught libation to. Um, I guess it's been about eight months ago when her daughter was had uh, took the relative down in Virginia Beach. She said, I don't have any money. I can't afford a lawyer. I said, get a court-appointed lawyer. I said, you start doing libations. And I said, your ancestors will open up a door for your daughter to be released from jail. And she, so she called me yesterday. She said, Brother Brown. I've been trying to find your number and I ran across your number the other day and she said my daughter has been free she just had to go through the psychiatric evaluation for 35 days she said she'll be, she was exonerated of all charges we need to understand the elements of spiritual warfare that our ancestors have provided us with they have given us the tools they have given us all the instructions of self-empowerment and as you said Really, my brother Scott, he said when I when I was in a transition between jobs, he said, What did that do? I had to learn how to lay brick, but that learning how to lay brick gave you something that you can always go back to. Because that's not gonna ever change. It's gonna always be there for you. And to the listening audience that's coming up on the last um half an hour of our segment with the lotus place that you're ready to go to a break in just a few seconds. Uh, once again, I would ask that Brother Scott is going to give out the number. I would ask that you call in, comment, you know, tell me if you like the program, tell me what your thoughts are. And I really want to hear from the listening audience because we need some input. We need people to understand that this has to be a concentrated Africa, I mean, African concept based on you. Mr. Brother Scott, you can go to break now. Vanglorious, as we are protected by the red, the black, and the green. Heed the words of the brothers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. And we are back. You're listening to the Lotus Place Radio right here on Black Talk Radio Network. The telephone number as we jump into the last half hour of the program is 641 615-3660 that's 641-715-3660 the participant code is 549-032-POUND that's 549-032-POUND and if you want to comment hit star 6 and 1 okay is mother mother done and come back Uh, her line is open I don't know where she is but um I want to ask you one thing about this. That this North Carolina, uh, in North Carolina, I'm, I think I've been through Gaston County 
been a long time ago though. But I, I'm trying to remember where it is. It's, it's uh, I know it's in the inner parts of North Carolina. Uh, it's not too far from Charlotte. Yeah, it's like in Western, Western North Carolina. It, we would consider this Western North Carolina. Yeah. Right. Um, let me, cause I'm, I'm more familiar with the, <clears throat> excuse me, the eastern part of North Carolina, Moria City, Little Bass City, uh, you know, Wilmington, places like that. Um, there are a lot of areas in North Carolina. I remember coming from Fayetteville, I guess it was in 1970, I want to say 1970, 1973. Yeah, it was in 1973. They used to have a billboard in Fayetteville, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And when you come through there, because I was in Thompson, South Carolina, in 1973, I was a merchant seaman on a ship. And we came home on weekends. We had to come through Fayetteville. But my point is that um, in Fayetteville, they had a billboard that said, and they had this guy that was on a white horse, and he had a clan uniform, and he had a lance in his head. It mm-hmm. said, and the billboard said that you are now entering clan country. Mm-hmm. There are a large concentration still of the clan in North Carolina. They don't have rallies like they used to, but I'm sure that they um, are still uh, organized here. Do you know the Klan that had the rally down there in South Carolina at the State House after they took down the flag? They were from North Carolina. All right. Uh, there have been books written about North Carolina having the a, a highest concentration of due-paying, card-carrying Klan members than any other state in the United States. It wasn't Mississippi. It wasn't Alabama. It wasn't Louisiana. It wasn't Florida. It wasn't nowhere else. It wasn't Georgia. It wasn't South Carolina. North Carolina had the highest concentration of Klan members than any other state. And so when you think, when you know that, then you can, that puts, um, they puts the actions of Robert F. Williams into context and why them brothers had to pick up arms and why they were shooting back. Because it was hell here. This is like ground zero for Klan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Virginia's not too far from it because I remember a friend of mine, he's, he made a transition about, I guess, about 12 years ago. And I guess he was, we were about 19 at the time, and he had got locked up in Chesapeake, Virginia. And they scared him so bad. Matter of fact, he died in North Carolina, and they had to ship his body back because once he left the state of Virginia, he made a vow. He said, man, I ain't never come back. I don't know what they did to him while he was incarcerated, but then he was incarcerated on, on um, child support charges. And um, we went to high school together, and he told me that night, when he got out, he said, he told me, he said, I'm not going to ever come back to Virginia unless I come back in a body bag or a box. That's how he came back. And McLean, he told me, he said he had never been intimidated so much in his life with fear as he was in that jail. He said, because every night, this guard would come by and tell him, to come here, boy. He said, you know, uh, I'm a car carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And 
he said that they intimidated him so bad that he didn't know what to do. So he said when he got out of there, he would go. And he left Virginia, he never came back. Yeah, um, but uh, again, there is a strong um, history of black resistance in North Carolina to the Klan. Again, oh, Robert yeah. Robert F. Williams, he didn't start um, uh, Deacons for Defense. It was the Black Guard. He actually had an NAR uh, charter for a rifle club. And so, right, um, that's right. but it was him. They got in the shootouts with that. the Klan and the police and the police. They shot at cops too. And the Lumbee Indians, which is around Charlotte, around there, they routed the Klan so bad one time. I mean, they they had them they had them Klan members Klan members running off, leaving their kids and children and stuff. I'm serious. They they literally left their kids and children to get away from them Lumbee Indians. All right, and and yeah, I so have, I have a friend of mine that was I have a friend of mine that was part Lumbee and years ago he's he's deceased. He over the old on drugs. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, now what was the name of the brother? I don't recall, but I think they, I I'm maybe mistaken, but I want to say that they started in Louisiana, but I can't remember the name, you're but right, I can look right, it up right, for you. You're right, you're right. No, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. They, they started in Baton Rouge, I think. Mm-hmm. It was, it was Baton Rouge, it was a county right around Baton Rouge. I can't remember, but I do know that they went to New Orleans to the docks and got their weapons. Because some of those guys that came out of the Korean War, and they knew guys that was unloading ships during that during that time period, and they was you know during that time you know it was easy for them to show them to break open cases of stuff because everything had to be handled by hand. There was no containerized vessel, and um, they broke open them cases of weapons, you know, and they took the weapons and they 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 gave them an automatic weapons, you know. And I, you're right, it was Louisiana. Robert F. Williams, didn't they, didn't they try to lock him up? Didn't he have to be the Yeah, they used the news media to demonize him. He saved, right. see, he yeah, that white Cuba, couple, right. yeah, that white couple made a mistake of coming through the black community during a period of when they was at war with the police. And them black people wanted to kill them white people. And they had took them out the car. And really, Robert F. Williams saved their life. Um, cause, cause he took them into his house and then snuck them out, you know, the back door cause he didn't, cause he knew a day to kill them white people, it was gonna be a whole lot of casualties that day. So he was trying to save lives. He wasn't trying to help the white people for the sake of helping them. But, uh, but yeah, and so then they filed false kidnapping charges on him and that's when he had to flee to Cuba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember reading his excerpts about, uh, some of the excerpts that he wrote somewhere where he said that he, he couldn't come back into the country. And there was a lot of ex-Black Panthers, you know, that are still, are still right now living in Cuba as well as Asada Shakur. But there's also Black Panthers living in, in, um, Exile and certain parts of Africa. Yeah, Brother so, Pete Tanzania. I've inter- had an opportunity to interview him. The electricity don't, you know, it like comes on certain periods and stuff, but he has called in right, and I've interviewed him. To. Yeah, him and his wife. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Brother Pete O'Neill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pete O'Neill, yeah. 
And, you know, the thing about it is that these were brothers who only wanted to work in the community. You know, and and I don't think Pete has seen this moment in what, seen this family in what, 40 years? It was something to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, they tried yeah. to get him on a gun, uh, transporting a gun across state lines, and he knew that they was right. going to convict him, and so he just he just went to Europe and then made his way to Africa. Yeah, yeah, and, and he was blocked from doing that. And that last time yeah. I talked to him, which has been, what, about maybe two years since I talked to Brother Pete, but um, he was saying even if they, you know, because there were some people talking about getting him a pardon, and he was like, I don't even want no pardon because I ain't come back. Yeah, I think, um, let me see, it was Ernest Chili, Willie Thomas, and Kirkpatrick started the Dickens of Defense. That was down, Douglas Kirkpatrick, that was down in Louisiana. Yeah, Jonesboro yeah. is where uh, Chili Willie was born. Right. And, you know, um, when when Eldridge and them took that concept, it wasn't for the radicalism that was promulgated by the newspapers, you know, and they got the most, the most attention they got was when Betty Shabazz was coming to, I think it was what, UCLA? When she came to UCLA, she came to one of them schools out there in California, and they gave her um, protection. And they walked up the steps, and that's when Ronald Reagan said they got to go. And Ronald Reagan was the first one to, to declare war on the Panthers, and you know he he was followed by J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. and 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 COINTELPRO. I had that book at one time. You know when I moved, I lost a lot of my books. But I had that book called COINTELPRO, and in that book they had all of the papers of the FBI files. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a big dossier on Malcolm X. I got that book called The FBI Files on Malcolm X. That's a big, big dossier. They yeah, some white activists, Malcolm. some white anti-war activists had broken into a FBI field office, I think, I want to say New Jersey. Um, and, and then that's when they found all of these documents, and then that's when it blew right. the lid open, because they took them documents and turned them over. Uh, you do have a call. I have to step, step away for a second, check on my grandson, but you do have a call. Area code 678. Thank you for calling in to the Lotus Place. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. You are on with Brother Brown. Good evening, my brother. Oh. Much, much appreciated for for all of the commentary. Um, I've heard I've heard some of uh, your commentary uh, on this network in the past, but uh, never to uh, this degree. And I just, you know, much appreciate it and the work that you've done over the years, and um, especially some of what you were touching on as far as uh, educational initiatives um, in the in the hoods throughout this. Uh, you know, uh, territory. Um, I, I, I feel like it's just vital what you're speaking to. Um, I didn't, I didn't have anything um, specific to say. I, I did hear, um, you know, the call for people to call in, and I did want to just speak to the fact that um, I'm having a lot of difficulty uh, reaching the site online. So, um, you know, I, I uh, tuned in on the burner phone. 
but uh, online, uh, you know, I'm having trouble even reaching the page, and that might speak to some of the, you know, difficulty for others as far as, you know, calling in and uh, speaking on, you know, what you have to say. Okay, well, I appreciate you calling in, my brother, and commenting uh, on on what the conversation was about. And uh, feel free to call in anytime we have a program. And this is an enlightening program. This is something that all of us need. Uh, it's not a one-sided avenue. We're all in this together. And the more people that come into the mindset of us being African people with the same struggle, the better we can obtain the empowerment we need to change the mindset of our youth and stop them from the deviant behavior because there's a lot of us out here who have knowledge and who have been blessed with wisdom and understanding in various areas of life. And these young kids, you know, my generation, because I'll be 62 in a couple more months, my generation basically some of my generation dropped the ball. I've been working with kids ever since I got off drugs 31 years ago. I've been working with you. You know, even before I, you know, became clean, I was a heroin addict. But before I became clean, I used to coach basketball. I used to pull you out of the street. You know, it's always been my endeavor to give back to my community. And, you know, I had people who, when I was a youth growing up in the projects, they took me and corralled me and said, you know, come on and play some sports, even though I wasn't uh, as, as an, an athlete extraordinaire or prima donna, but it was just the cohesiveness of being on a team and, you know, to keep me from deviant behavior and to give me a sense of being of unity with something. And see, that's what sports is all about in the black community, you know, giving these kids an outlet, you know, but in the course of that, you know, after I became a, 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 a coach, one of the things that I, I would have, I would have meetings with the parents, and I would tell the parents one of my one of the, one of my goals when I coached was discipline. Okay, kids could not come into my avenue when I was a coach and act the fool. Okay, I didn't I didn't permit it. The other thing was that every every grading period, anybody that played ball with me. They had to bring a report card, and if they had failing grades and needed to be picked up, they got put on the bench. And I would make them come in in the evening when they came for practice. They would only do half practice. The other half of their practice was doing homework. I made sure that they did not go home and do homework. My kids had to stay an extra half an hour to make sure that I looked at their homework. See, these are the kind of initiatives that we need to put back in place. And I saw one of the parents years ago, years after I left and stopped coaching. And, you know, she said, her daughter, she said, Mr. Brown, she said, you started my daughter off. She said, now my daughter's playing AAU ball. She's getting ready to play college ball. And she said, she still think about the fundamentals you taught her. We have to do that in the black community. We have to lay some groundwork. You know, we, Mr. Sister Black Rose talked about people just doing, a, just having a whole lot of conversation with no action behind it. Can I say something about the education piece? Here here in North Carolina, in North Carolina, the Supreme Court just ruled that the school voucher program that they have um, is constitutional. Mm -hmm. 
and that we could take advantage of that. But so many of our people and that I, I subscribe this to that Democratic, you know, uh, plantation is they want to save a failing school system. You want to keep your children in what they what you call yourself a school to prison pipeline. All right. Now, who in their right mind would want to put their children in a pipeline straight straight to prison? And we need to take advantage of homeschooling. It's a great state for homeschooling. Check your state for homeschooling. You may not think you can do it, um, but, you know, you may find out that you can. And they have homeschool collectives where it's not parents doing it all by themselves. You know what I'm saying? And and so we right. had to look at these things like you was talking earlier about retired educators and stuff like that. Well, I mean, if we got these retired educators as well as, you know, kids coming out of school with degrees and whatnot in teaching or what, why we can't start uh, our own charter schools or whatever? You know what I'm saying? And, and so I'm well, just tired. Yeah, I'm tired of our people. Uh, talking about trying to save this public education system because the Democrats want to, the Democrats want to save it. And, and I'm against privatizing it because the Republicans are for that. Well, no, no, no. If you want to liberate yourself, that's a way you can liberate yourself in two people activity areas, education and a uh, business. Okay. That's right. That's right. Education and economics. I'm sorry. Education and economics. Education and economics will propel us into the future. It doesn't mean, you know, Malcolm X said something in one of his excerpts. He said, we need to understand one thing about black economics in our community. Because we don't manufacture anything, we have to resell the goods to our people that we buy from the Jews and the people that own the factories. But in doing so, our people need to understand the concept of how we are providing a service to them. See, if I sell clothes, just for instance, because I used to sell clothes, I used to go to New York and buy a whole lot of clothes, and then I would order clothes and ship them and sell them down south. But it was a business. There was no week that I couldn't pick up, pick up three or four hundred dollars aside from my job. You know, and that's what that's what helped me to create my organization. That's what helped me to take care of my family. But in doing so, I had to understand the basics of what I of what I needed to do. And that was to empower myself to help empower my community. So I had people that, that wouldn't even go to the stores because I had the same thing in the trunk of my car. And my prices were cheaper, and I gave them credit, and they paid because they knew that for the price that I was giving them, they couldn't get it anywhere else. So when it comes to the education aspect, the charter schools in our community need to be run by us. Okay, they don't need to be run by Superman from corporate America. I'm not in agreement with having any charter school that these white folks are going to control. Right. Because if that's the case, then let's get to the public education system, but make it work for us. See, one of the things about, I mentioned earlier in this program, was understanding the game and the rules of the game. See, the game of white supremacy and racism is to keep us on the bottom. The rules of white supremacy and racism is how do we kind of attack that. If our children are not reading progressively, 
at the third and fourth grade level, level specifically black males, and guess what? That is our job. All of these churches got these little so-called uh, educational buildings to them. Make them open the doors in our community. Go to them people while they're doing it. While they, go to them on Sunday and say, I'd like to speak to your congregation. And stand up like they, you know, how they do this thing among the churches where, you know, are there any guests here? We'll be a guest in the church. When you get up, you say what you got to say. We need your educational facility because the kids in this area are failing. And we'll make a proposal to rent this room for you for X amount of dollars or free because you're a nonprofit organization in our community. And we need your building because we do not want our kids to be part of the pipeline of prisons. You see what I'm saying? And make it known that if we don't do this, then our children will become prisoners because they're, they're the statistics that they take back to the United States Bureau of Prisons to get money appropriated to build these facilities. They build the beautifulest penitentiaries in the world in the state of Virginia. You know, I mean, they're beautiful because I've been to several correctional institutions because I've been I've been a, a advocate for inmates, I guess, for the last 25 years. But and I have been to some of the most dangerous penitentiaries in, in, in the state of Virginia. But in all essence, this is what we need to stop. We need to stop the recidivism. You know, it makes no sense for our young men to do these bits in the penitentiary, come out, and can't go to work. That's where the economics come in from us. We need to start preparing jobs that we can hire our own people. You know, I have a small painting business, and I employ about three or four people from time to time. But whenever whenever they're needed and whenever I get a job because I'm, you know, disabled and I get jobs specifically for them to do, then it's no problem. See, we, we need to understand the reciprocity. See, and that's one of the things that I learned from one of my mentors who made a transition, that we don't deal with the law of reciprocity. We have abandoned the law of reciprocity just like we abandoned extended family. You know, when one of our loved ones now gets sick or disabled or whatever, one of the first things we want to do, we want to put them in a nursing home. And the nursing home says, you got to sell all your land. You know, or they take the land. A lot of nursing homes you know, they had to sign over the land in the state of Virginia. They got to sign the houses and the land over to you, to the nursing home, for your loved one to stay, in there, stay there and be taken care of, regardless of whether they got insurance or not. It's, it's, it's a kind game. So we Stealing your inheritance. Game. Right. See, what, what, what we, the rules to that game <clears throat> is this. When you know that a person is going to be in long-term care and you know what their situation is, get power of attorney over them, you understand me, you let them transfer the property to you. Okay, the property remains in the hands of the family and we never long pay the taxes and the property is never taken by these nursing homes. It's just a simple solution. But we have to be adamant about understanding you do that the corrupt judicial system that works along with the economics of white supremacy and racism. 
why put them in a nursing home unless it's owned by black people when you could do in-home. That's how we ended up back in North Carolina because my mom had moved to Detroit and her father had a stroke. And so we came back down here and been down here ever since. So, you know, try to avoid putting them in a nursing home. But again, talking about creating jobs and stuff like that, you know, how about a, a, a black home care network? To come in and help right. and assist with our people. We got to think long term. We have to think long term, you know, and we have to be goal-oriented. See, one of our, another major problem about black empowerment is that we don't have goals. See, we don't set goals. And if we don't set goals as adults, then our children will not have a, a blueprint to follow. You know? They, they're, all, they're not goal-oriented. You take this younger generation, parents didn't set goals, they didn't set goals, so they fall into the clutches of white supremacy and racism. Goal orientation helped me a lot. When I got off of narcotics, I always kept a goal in front of my eyes. You know, I always wanted to attain something. I always had some, something to push or keep my drive going. And right now today, I'm I'm still, I'm 62 years old. I'm still goal-oriented. I have goals right now that I set for myself, and I figure out which way is best for me to attain those goals. And once I reach those goals, I put another one in front of my eyes. You have to keep a dream and a goal in front of your eyes in order to be effective in this world of white supremacy and racism. And you have to teach that to this younger generation. They have failed by the wayside so much because they come from broken homes, they come from situations where nobody taught them anything about the school of life, or nobody gave them anything about the transition of social skills, you know, because one of the elements, and I know we got three minutes left, one of the elements of integration was to take the black man out of the house. He gave the white, he gave the black woman, if she had a kid, give a welfare check, a house in the project, free utilities, food stamps. He gave her Medicaid card. He gave her everything that she needed for herself, but a future. And a future to have a family. So that destructive element alone destroyed our self-empowerment of the family. And in the city you go in, you find the same scenario. So we're coming up on two minutes. I really appreciate you, Brother Skyler. I appreciate Sister Black Rose for giving me the opportunity to share with the listening audience uh, these elements associated with black empowerment, education, economics, and the social aspects and uh, endeavors of our people that are negative that need to be turned around and be positive. Uh, I look forward to Sister Rose Black Rose getting herself together in a couple of days and coming back on the radio on Friday and doing her, her weekly uh relationship program and it was a pleasure meeting you my brother same uh, here brother you want any, any comments um no i just want to say thank you for uh filling in for sister black rose i'm sure she appreciated i appreciate it and i'm sure the listeners appreciate it and i've really enjoyed you know the perspective and the knowledge that you were uh bringing here tonight and it was good speaking with you Like I said, I really enjoyed um I enjoyed the opportunity. I enjoyed Mother Dunning shedding some light on some situations. Uh, 
I usually look at CNN. Maybe they'll repeat it tonight. I'll look at it after I get off the radio. But, uh, you know, we'll have to continue this conversation maybe next week. And uh, we'll do another phase of black empowerment. Because I want to continue to, I'm going to use a book by Angus Wilson called Blueprints for Black Power next week. And then I'll use some excerpts from that to share with the listening audience. And uh, then we can, maybe I can come to North Carolina and we can develop something. All right, it's 12 o'clock. I appreciate the listening audience. And in closing, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, and I'll say. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.